thank you, everyone, uh, for being here tonight. My name is Guy Temple. I'm one of the uh, board members, the board of directors at the Bayview Community Center. And we are so excited to have you here tonight for what I, I'm sure is going to be an amazing uh, and fascinating presentation from Mr. John Gerda. I want to thank 889. Um, this space this is our first time hosting an event here. Uh, such an amazing space, and 889 has been such an amazing community partner here in Milwaukee, uh, celebrating their 10th anniversary this year. And we're going to be talking a lot this evening um, about uh, you know how community grew here in Milwaukee and on the South Shore, and then how the community center has worked to sustain a sense of community. And I'll tell you, over the last 10 years, uh, it's hard to see any organization in Milwaukee doing more for sustaining and building community than 889. Uh, so thank you to our hosts here at 889 Radio Milwaukee. And with that, I'm going to turn over the microphone here to Dylan Bolin, a Milwaukee writer and comedian who is going to introduce uh, the esteemed John Gerda. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. Thank you very much, Guy. Uh, hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out tonight and supporting the uh, BBCC. Uh, um, it's it's uh, fantastic uh, for me to be here and to see all of those faces out there. Uh, by the way, if anybody has to do any public speaking, uh, quick note, um, don't eat corn on the cob. <laughs> that should be right out. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here, and it's a, a real pleasure to introduce uh, John Goethe. Now, this actually is not my first time introducing uh, John Goethe, because about 20-some years ago, um, I had the opportunity to be head writer on and performer uh, on uh, a radio show called Hotel Milwaukee on WHAD, which was uh, Wisconsin Public Radio. And because it was public radio, uh, it didn't obviously pay very well, uh, but I got all the tote bags I could handle. So, so that was fantastic, and, and I, was, I was in my mid-twenties. Basically, I was, I was writing jokes in my underwear for beer money, and then I would, uh, every other week, we would drive down to the Astor Hotel, where we would tape two shows in the ballroom at the Astor Hotel. Uh, now, I was, um, I, obviously, I was the, the head writer there, and this was, uh, a show that was, well, we had a stable of actors that was also the, uh, the house band. Uh, we had uh, John Norquist would come down occasionally and play a saxophone. I don't know if you knew, Mayor John Norquist was a saxophone player and he could wail. And we had guests, many, 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 many guests. And one of those guests was a Milwaukee historian by the name of John Goethe. And I wrote, uh, an introduction for this man every single week. Now, Hotel Milwaukee was something called Live on Tape. Perhaps you've heard of that. Uh, it sounds like an oxymoron, but what that means is we performed in front of a live audience, but then it was edited down for time and content, uh, and they edited out my swearing and so on. So, no, I didn't actually. But what would happen is, uh, when something else was going on, there was a segment that was going on, I was busy going over a script or I was setting something up. I didn't get to see a lot of the segments. But when John Goethe's stories came on, when he did his segment about the history of the area, I found myself listening in spite of myself, in spite of all of the other things that I was supposed to be doing. And he would come on and he would tell his stories. Now, once again, 
He would tell stories about the history of Milwaukee. And remember, I was mid-20s. I was pretty cynical. I was a comedian. I didn't care much about things. It was pretty much, <laughs> whatever. I was very self-involved. But week after week after week of listening to John speak, something started to change. Because after hearing him talk about the city, then when I left the Astro Hotel, the city outside was not just, it wasn't just background. It wasn't just the context in which I did my thing. It wasn't just scenery. It began to become a character. And I felt myself beginning to change a little bit too. Because as I looked at these things, I began to feel part of a, con a continuum. That I wasn't alone, that my world extended beyond here, but I was part of something much larger. A continuum of celebrations and challenges which weren't so different from the ones that we face today. A continuum of families that loved and lived and lost with as much optimism and dignity as they could muster. I felt like I was a small thread in a much larger tapestry, a big tapestry. And I was very infinitesimal, but if you look hard enough, you could see it, and it was real, and that was me. I felt like I was actually a player in a story that began long ago, but that was still being written. And I developed a newfound appreciation for my city. I began to love it like a family, right? Family, your family, it's not perfect, never was, never will be, but it was mine. And I began to feel that, listening to those stories. Fast forward, 20 years later, just a year ago, my wife and I, our family was growing and we had to buy a house and we had to have, make a choice as to where that place would be. Now, my wife, who is, who is here, also works with several foundations and groups and businesses whose focus it is to uh, improve Milwaukee, to promote Milwaukee. So when the time came for us to choose, we chose to make our home, once again, right here in Milwaukee. Here is where we chose to make our living. Here is where we chose to pay our taxes. Here is where we chose to raise our family. Here is where we chose to continue to support the city that had been so good to us. Now for me, personally, I can tell you that that impulse to stick by my town through thick and thin, through better or worse, and, and Lord knows it has its challenges, that impulse to do so began 20 years prior in the Astor Hotel Ballroom, listening to the stories of Mr. John Gerda. And hopefully tonight, you will get to experience a little bit of that for yourself. So ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce your speaker for this evening, John Gerda. John. We should, we should all hear such nice things before we die while we are still here. So thank you, Dylan. I do recall when, when you were a kid uh, back in, the, in your 20s, and we were at the Astor. We were also at the, the Eisman Museum of, of Advertising there for the last couple of years. 
And my title in that show, Hotel Milwaukee, was Hotel Historian and Barfly. So those, those were my, my two epithets. And I've traded that now for being the guy on the bicycle in Around the Corner with John McGivern. So I haven't moved that far <laughs> over these years. Uh, and thanks for that testimonial, Dylan. History does have that power to kind of extend our range from the, the here and now to the, the then and the future as well. So it's uh, something that I, I think is uh, a tool we can all use. I want to talk about the South Shore tonight, uh, but I want to tell a story about my own uh, involvement in Bayview, first of all. My wife and I moved to Bayview back in 1978 to a home on Knox Street where Wentworth kind of jogs. It was the last $36,000 home in Bayview. It had no alley, no garage, and it was one basement, so it was a base, one bathroom and a, a sand-floored basement, so it's fairly primitive. And one of the first things we did when we came to the neighborhood uh, was we joined the board of the Bayview Community Center, which happened to be started in 1978. So around the same time as we moved into the neighborhood. And we've been here for a long time, but that's not long enough to feel like natives yet. <laughs> you know, Bayview has that kind of staying power. You know, people who have been here for generations are welcoming, but still not the same as, as us newcomers who have been here for all these years. So I had been, in my earlier years, a staff member of Journey House on the near south side. My wife had been director of something called Celery Bog. We were both youth centers. So naturally, we kind of came to Bayview Community Center. At the time, it was directed by Rita Hagen, who has since moved on to be a producer at Channel 12, and was housed in what used to be the, the weightlifting shop in the Avalon building. So that's where BVCC was back in those early years. And it has certainly kind of gone to the moon in terms of where it was back in those years. But one of my sharp memories was my wife Sonia was the board chairman for two years, and we had our first child back in 1979. And it was the challenge of discreetly nursing a baby while also running a meeting. So <laughs> a challenge she uh, met admirably. And that son is now 38 years old and expecting his own child this February. So time does march on, things, things do evolve. So the evolution of a family is certainly something we've all experienced. What I want to talk about tonight is the evolution of a community. Here is a Google Earth view of Milwaukee, and one of its distinguishing features is that broad bay. You kind of look out to this huge scallop in the shoreline, but it, even though it has one bay, it is a story of two very, very different shorelines. So here, if you look at the baseline in Milwaukee is Canal Street, that's 0, 0,100 in the heart of the Menominee Valley. Here is 2,600 north, and here is 2,600 south. <laughs> Imagine a starker contrast. So here you have those two uh, kind of bookends, mansions along the lakefront and workers' cottages on the south lakefront. North and south could hardly be more different. They are equidistant from the heart of town. They are certainly have the same view of the lake, and in Bayview's case, we're even closer to the lake. You know, the bluff is not so high, and access is less complicated by Lincoln Memorial Drive. So how did they end up looking so different? How did it happen that Whitefish Bay and Shorewood are so different from Cudahy and South Milwaukee and Bayview? The answer is history. 
The answer is always history. I define history very simply as why things are the way they are, and I can think of no better example of that, the truth of that statement than the story of the South Shore of Milwaukee Bay. The story that I'll trace goes all the way from right here. This is Walker's Point. We are about two blocks away from the actual point. And it starts with this guy whose name was George Walker, as you might imagine, the guy that the point was named for. He was born in Virginia, uh, Lynchburg, and raised in southern Illinois. Came to Milwaukee in 1834 when it was kind of a frontier outpost, a fur trading center, just on the cusp of becoming an urban opportunity. And he put his settlement on the end of a small point of land and I'll show you where, where we are tonight. This is Walker's Point, and we're right about here though, this evening. Walker's Point was right where the Water Street Bridge crosses into the Third Ward. So there actually was a small peninsula of land, and here you can see it, almost down to the foot. And it was maybe 12 feet high, a couple of blocks long, uh, maybe two or 300 yards uh, from the point all the way down to where it met the, the mainland. And this was very quickly erased to fill in all the swampland that graced most of what's now central Milwaukee. This was, a, this was wet. You know, the entire central part of Milwaukee was wet. So he put his point, put his cabin there on that point back in 1834. And as you know the story, he was one of three competitors for the title of being the founder of Milwaukee. You had Juno on the east side of the Milwaukee River, Kilburn on the west, Junotown and Kilburntown and Walker and Walker's Point, and downtown probably should have developed right here, developed here in Walker's Point. Because back in those years, everyone got here by water, and the river mouth was our front door. So everybody came here first before they ended up on Wisconsin Avenue. So there were other uh, things going on that made it difficult for George Walker to prevail. He had no political backing, he had no money, and a somewhat laid-back personality one of his contemporaries, a guy named Enoch Chase, Chase Avenue in Bayview, that's his family. Uh, he said this about Walker, he said he was a free liver, somewhat careless in his business habits, and while he laid the foundations of what might have been a great fortune, he was never in easy circumstances and often greatly embarrassed till the large portion of his fine estate slipped away from his grasp. So not a world beater. No. <laughs> he was certainly a laid back personality, fond of dining, uh, he weighed about 350 pounds <laughs> at a time before Little Debbie snack cakes and Nacho Supremes. <laughs> Something of an achievement. But his biggest handicap was that somebody from Green Bay, which was then Wisconsin's metropolis, jumped his claim. It took him seven years to get a clear title. So until he, that, that passed, that time passed, he could not sell lots with unencumbered titles. And he couldn't afford a lawyer either, couldn't afford Gruber, unless some Gruber folks <laughs> here this evening. So as a result, the torch passed to what became Milwaukee's downtown. If the founder had been someone else, if this had been Kilbourne's Point instead of Walker's Point, it's quite easy to imagine that this would be, National Avenue would be Wisconsin Avenue, Market University would be on the west side of Walker's Point instead of the west side of what became Kilbourne Town. And this would have been the very heart of Wisconsin's largest city. So as it was, this became by far the a distant third in that three-legged race for supremacy. It was the smallest of three settlements when Milwaukee became a city back in 1846. 
1855, even though they were equidistant or equal-sized equal areas, there were only 13% of the city's population lived on Walker's Point. The other 87% uh, were on the area north of the Menominee Valley. So you can kind of see where we are uh, this evening. No, Walker's Point is right about here, and even by this time, that land has been erased and covered with buildings. But you still have some swamp land here, actually right across the street uh, from where we are at 88.9 this evening. So you have this early pattern of kind of being uncompetitive with the settlements across the river. There was kind of a silver lining, uh, first of all, because there was a lack of development pressure. Walker's Point had fewer demands on its real estate, so the result is you've got these 1860s, 1870s houses. No, not too far away from here. This has been called uh, the most relatively intact 19th century neighborhood in Milwaukee, and it starts just a little bit south of us. Something else, it takes a little kind of teasing out to explain, but if you look at the Walker's Point area, the entire south side, Canal Street, the valley, that is the dividing line for Milwaukee County. Equal areas, both north and south. From the time of the late 1800s to the present, there have been two people north of the valley for every person south in Milwaukee County. That's why Franklin and Oak Creek still have farmland. And the north side has been developed all the way out to the county line. So it's absolutely a result. Uh, this long shadow being cast by tidal problems here on Walker's Point have an impact on the south suburbs in the entire county. So again, history is why things are the way they are. So you have this relatively open land and fewer demands on it in terms of intense development. It did not become so much residential as the area on the north side, but what it had was access to water, access to rail, as you can see from the upper, upper the middle of the picture there, and in time, access to workers, and what that meant was industries. So smokestacks is the theme tonight, and that begins very early in Walker's Point's career. Just about two blocks away from here, they'll go down 1st Street, turn left, go to Florida, just past the railroad tracks there. This, this shop stood there. This was the Alice Reliance Works that go back to 1867. This was the forerunner of Alice Chalmers. About a block west of here was the Harnish Fager uh, machine shop. And that first in Florida, it's where Comedy Sports is, uh, Central Bark, uh, Lick Paint, or now Restore is there as well. It's not the most scenic corner in Milwaukee, but within two blocks of that intersection, you have plants that became Alice Chalmers, Harnish Fager, Nordberg, Chain Belt, A.O. Smith, Kearney and Trekker, Allen Bradley, Filer and Stoll, some of these Fortune 500 companies all in one eight square block area. So it was just an amazing, profusion of energy, innovation, and talent. Uh, like the Ruhr Valley in Germany, you know, like the Cuyahoga in Cleveland, this really was you know, kind of globally important in terms of its industrial concentration. And that certainly helped to set the tone for what happened farther south. And now the next step south is Bayview. And you have smokestacks in Walker's Point, and you have a lot of smokestacks in Bayview. This view is not available today, but this was the south lakefront around the foot of the Danhone Bridge. Cactus Club, uh, Garibaldi, uh, that area, Three Brothers, look north, this is what you would have seen uh, back in the later 1800s. It's called the Milwaukee Iron Company when it began, that was back in 1868. 
and it was founded by a Detroit capitalist named Aberbrock Ward. Ward Street is the last reminder of his presence in Bayview, that little shortcut uh, kind of in the north end of the neighborhood. And you have the plant opening back in 1868, quickly became the second largest maker of railroad rails in the country. So this was large in terms of the expanding railroad base in Milwaukee. And it became the, by far the largest employer, not just in Milwaukee, but the state. This place had 2,000 workers in the 1870s. So that dwarfs you know, Caterpillar or Harley or any of the other uh, household names in Milwaukee today. And they were very largely uh, immigrants who worked in some really, really harsh conditions. These guys are rolling iron. And back in those days, our ancestors had one-day weekends. Sunday was all you got. Six days a week was expected. You worked at least 10 hours a day, sometimes 12 hours a day. And these guys who were kind of on the entry level would work for maybe a buck and a quarter a day. And not a dime in any kind of fringe benefits, no health insurance, no workers' comp. You know, this really was a very draconian system. And I know a dollar bought more back in those days, but if you do the math, the in inflation multiplier, it's about 250 an hour. So about less than half a minimum wage. Yeah, these are supposedly family-supporting jobs. So it was not just tough economically, but these guys worked in about 160 degrees of heat, which might have been okay in February, but that's also August. So there was one reporter uh, came down there from the Milwaukee Sentinel back in the 1870s, and he said it was a wonder that the men did not melt. So it was really a harsh, hellish, literally, working environment. But it was a really interesting kind of a United Nations of workers. Early on, the people who worked there were largely British by background because they were the only people in the world who knew how to smelt iron. And that was kind of the technological center. So they came here from especially places like Cornwall in southwestern England. Later on, it was the Germans and then the Irish and then a lot of Eastern Europeans and I love this sign that says, danger, look out for overhead crane in English. The next languages down are Czech, Hungarian, Serbo-Croatian, and Polish. He had to warn in all those languages to make sure the message was being understood. So it was very much a multi-ethnic workforce. And here's a bird's eye view looking from the south. And look the pride of place they gave the rolling mill you know, down here on the, the lower lakefront. The Hone Bridge is right about here. So this was really kind of the point of, of interest on Milwaukee's near south side. And back in those days, all the drawings, all the lithographs are the same, just clouds of smoke. And those were signs of prosperity. No, that meant you were doing well. <laughs> Today, you kind of look at that as nothing but carcinogens. Uh, back in those days, it was kind of an advertisement for your community's prosperity. So you have the, the rolling mill, which changed names frequently, uh, was the catalyst for all kinds of industrial development. And you can see it kind of running up, uh, not Jones Island here, which was a fishing village of Kashubians from the Baltic Sea coast of Poland, but all these railroad tracks, and you kind of come up here to Bay Street. Companies like Rot Washer, Louis Alice, Milwaukee Valve, Nordberg, you know, they located in Bayview and made it a real industrial powerhouse. So industry was its base, and Bayview became very much uh, community with its own character, its own personality. Love this photograph, George Musman, uh, who was a, a gifted amateur photographer, kind of the neighborhood gang. Uh, they were German, they were Irish, they were Scottish, they were Welsh.
Bayview had its own ethnic patterns. It had its own churches reflecting those patterns. There are two Catholic churches in Bayview. I see, everyone knows as Immaculate Conception. Uh, that was Irish and St. Augie's was German. Now, both Catholic, but one Irish and one German. It had its own pastimes. Sailing was and still is you know, the, one of the major pastimes in Bayview. And I love that little girl on the left. <laughs> I don't want to be here, Mom. <laughs> Get me off this boat. Uh, but this was the beginnings of what became in time the South Shore Yacht Club back in about 1913. Back in those days, you, you dressed up on Sunday. That was your, your only time to shine. And you have the Bayview Rolling Mill being part of it all. And it supported this multi-ethnic multi polyglot population. Uh, the people shopped on KK, on Lincoln, on Russell, went to parks like South Shore and Humboldt. And that self-contained character, if you'd had kind of a San Andreas fault at, at Bay Street, Baby would do okay. You know, it has that kind of self-sufficient character uh, to this day. But you have that changing in time. The mill closed back in 1929, and that's before the Depression. U.S. Steel had bought it and shut it down because they were putting all their eggs in the Gary, Indiana basket, which you could see from space. You know, that was the, the heart of U.S. Steel. So the rolling mill in Bayview became kind of what they called a scrap mill. Uh, odd job, short runs, and pretty much expendable. So they closed it in 1929, and after some lengthy legal battles with, with the city, the city bought it back in 1938. So if you stand at that green space around Three Brothers there, you're looking out over 80 acres of what used to be this, you know, one of the most intense industrial concentrations in certainly the entire region. So the precedent had been set the mill closed, but you had kind of this industrial DNA, this smokestack DNA, you know, that develops in Walker's Point, moves on to Bayview, and the next stop south was Cudahy. And here's the guy for whom that, that uh, suburb is named, Patrick Cudahy, who was a native of Ireland, came here as a kid, lived in poverty, went to work at the age of 13 as a butcher's helper. Uh, back, back then, high school was, that was like college, you know, today. You know, may, very few people got there. And he was put to work at the age of 13, hauling buckets of beef scraps from trimming benches upstairs to a retail butcher shop downstairs uh, in the heart of Milwaukee for $3 a week. So he developed kind of an affinity for the meat business and caught on with a guy named John Plankinton, Plankinton Arcade, Plankinton Avenue, who was Milwaukee's premier meat packer, and in time became, at the age of 25, the superintendent of the Plankinton packing plant in the heart of the Menominee Valley, earning $1,600 a year, which was really doing well. It was, that was 1%, you know, back in uh, those early years. And as he said, I was pushing things for all I was worth, and his rewards were a share in Plankinton's business, and in time, a business of his own, and that was Cudahy Brothers. Uh, one brother was the capitalist, and Patrick was the guy who ran it. He was the on-site partner. And they were in the heart of the Menominee Valley, and that was fine because you had access to water, access to rail, but packing plants are not especially uh, aromatic uh, facilities. So he got pressure from people on both sides. Uh, he and other packing, packers got pressure from people on both sides. So he finally decided that he was uh, going to leave the stockyards, and these were right on the rim of the Menominee Valley near Mitchell, Mitchell Park. Look out from the domes. This is what you would have seen back in the early 1900s. 
tens of thousands of cattle and hogs brought to Milwaukee for a disassembly every year. So they shut this down, and he looked, as he said, for, he looked at a map and decided that uh, he wanted to decide about two miles south of the, the limits of Milwaukee on uh, the Chicago Northwestern Railroad. So again, he had to have rail access. So this was a settlement called Buckhorn, an early rural settlement called Buckhorn. And he bought land down here, put up this packing plant, and pretty soon Cudahy was known unofficially as Porkopolis because this was a major center of meatpacking in the southeastern Wisconsin. And here's a crew of Patrick Cudahy workers, guy in the middle in the front row, probably the foreman, the, guy, the only guy with a tie, you know, in, in that photograph. And here is a group of workers who are uh, putting something called snowball lard in buckets. So imagine the cholesterol <laughs> kind of the, assembled there. This was not work for the faint of heart and certainly not for anybody with vegetarian tendencies. They would kind of finish off their pigs, their, their hogs on the, on the premises. Uh, so as you've been around a pig farm, hog farm, they're, they're, they're smelly. And this would have been kind of the predominant smell in Bayview or coming over to Bayview from Cut A, now it's bacon. Uh, but you have uh, the hogs being raised and finally slaughtered and steamed, scalded to get the, the hair off and then cut up. So the guys here are making sausage casings and then turned into hams. So these guys, not sure what they ate for ham sandwiches at, at lunchtime or not. Probably being up to their elbows and all this stuff all day may have sort of dulled their appetite for, for beef. Uh, but you did have, you know, this major concentration of kind of packing activities in Cudahy. And in time, it became very much its own community, just as Bayview had. Multi-ethnic, like Bayview, uh, very heavily European, a lot of Poles in Cudahy, as there still are. Had its own city baseball team back in 1907, and just an amazing profusion of bars. <laughs> saloons up and down Packard, saloons up and down Layton. You know, all these guys developed some very powerful thirsts. And Packard Avenue was the main street, uh, was and still is, and still has kind of that small town atmosphere. And it was Patrick Cudahy himself who paid the, the village's incorporation fee back in 1895. And even though it was named for him, he felt pressure as the founding father. He's got a wonderfully chatty memoir. It's just called My Life. It's fun to read. You know, you've heard this chatty Irishman. And he said back in, when he wrote that back in 1912, whenever I saw a cottage going up, I felt just that much more of a load on my back. So he's kind of the founding father of this uh, somewhat dependent suburb. What happened was, again, following that smokestack DNA, more industries came down to Cudahy, and it became uh, perhaps second only to West Alice, you know, the key industrial suburb in the Milwaukee area. So you have companies like Federal Rubber, the George Meyer bottle washing plant, kind of a satellite industry of the brewers in Milwaukee, and a satellite plant of Red Star Yeast. Remember that on the freeway at about 26th Street? You know, when you came east, you, on an overcast day, that smell would just kind of descend uh, on the freeway. They had a satellite plant in what is now Sheridan Park. So this, as you can see, right, right on the lakeshore. 
And that was kind of the visionary socialists who ran Milwaukee County's park system, made the lakefront their priority. And this was eventually cleared and turned into Sheridan Park. So finally, you had kind of an industrial establishment in Cudahy. And other plants moved down, including one founded by this guy, whose name was Herman Laddish. And he was a maltster by trade. And we are really in the heart right here in Walker's Point. He ran a malting company just about two blocks to the east of us, and he had trouble with a crankshaft that kept on breaking. He took it to the Obenberger Ford shop, which was essentially a blacksmith, right about here, right around here on Pittsburgh, and they made him just a, a crankshaft that was beyond whatever his expectations had been. He was so impressed, he bought the blacksmith shop changed his name to his own and moved to Cudahy back in 1913. And they're still there now as part of ATI and that runs for seven tenths of a mile along Packard. So this is a huge part of Milwaukee, the Milwaukee area's industrial strength. They made automotive castings especially, but they could build just about anything, shaped for construction machinery and a host of other products. No, they would do things as big as Buicks in some, some of those shops. This is Hammer 66, which was for a long time the biggest in the world. And this still runs. You know, if you're, it's, a, not just, it's not a drop hammer. You know, they, they meet in the middle so you don't see, or feel as much vibration as you might in a conventional uh, Ford shop. But this was uh, certainly a behemoth by world standards. And Laddish became the, the owner and CEO of the biggest Ford shop in the entire world. Or right there in Packard Avenue in Cudahy. So you have the next stop out from Cudahy is, of course, South Milwaukee. And they tried to sort of circumvent their destiny, tried to overcome their DNA. And back in around 18, early 1890s, a group of Milwaukee businessmen began to buy land down there to develop what they called a pleasant resident suburb, permanent and for summer months. They were trying to be Fox Point. They were trying to be kind of this lakefront, uh, kind of a, a genteel uh, summer resort community on the south lakefront, just as Fox Point had been in Bayside along uh, Milwaukee's north lakeshore. And those plans actually got a boost back in 1893 when Downer College, which was a pioneer in women's education, uh, decided to move to Milwaukee, and there was competition for where they would move, and their land was offered down in what became South Milwaukee just north of Grand Park. That's why College Avenue is called College Avenue. No, that was supposed to be the location of Downer. And instead, they settled on Downer Avenue on Milwaukee's east side and built that campus. It's now part of EWM, you know, right there on Hartford and Downer Avenue. So College Avenue is still a main traveled road. And what it represents is kind of uh, sort of destiny fulfilled and ambition thwarted it became an industrial suburb, you know, just like all the others along the line, along the North Shore, smokestacks prevailed. And you have this kind of the same cut of cloth that prevailed in uh, Cudahy and Bayview. And they tried to develop with those time-honored incentives. It wasn't quite Foxconn, not, not three billion, but they, they did give free land and cash subsidies and tried hard to lure manufacturers to what had been a cow pasture. By far the biggest catch was the Bucyrus Steam Shovel and Dredge Company, 
which was established in 1880 back in Bucyrus, Ohio, a small town about halfway between T Toledo and Columbus. And that first Bucyrus plant moved into what they called the matchless suburb of South Milwaukee in 1893 and had a grand total of 50 workers back in those years. And they expanded and expanded and expanded, uh, filled out their line, became one of Milwaukee area's largest employers. And this is the main gate, which is still there. You'll see a slide of it in a little bit. And they also became the world's manufacturer, the world's largest uh, machinery, some of the largest machinery in the entire planet, especially mining shovels. And drag lines, uh, coal mines like this one, uh, used South Milwaukee-made equipment. But Bucyrus shovels also uh, dug the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal and the open pits in the Mesabi Iron Range. They were everywhere. But by far, the, the one the marketers loved, you know, the one that got the most publicity, was there was an entire fleet of Bucyrus cranes that dug the Pan Panama Canal. And who's down there at the controls? Teddy Roosevelt. So he was, he was the guy who was most responsible for that canal and went down there in his white suit <laughs> to help dig the canal. It's this early version of the photo up. And it was not just Bucyrus. She had other plants moving down there that made everything from horseshoes to kitchen knives. And South Milwaukee became, like Cudahy, like Bayview, a genuine community with its own character, its own uh, land use patterns, its own folkways. This is the downtown area. And its population moved from around 3,400 in 1900 to 11,000 in 1930. So it really grew like crazy. And you have landmarks like the, their own uh, railroad depot, which is still there, now Stromowski uh, Heating and Plumbing. And there were just a few survivors from the farm era. And this is the old Fowl Farmhouse, and you all recognize this. The clubhouse at Grand Park. This is this is where this is where you start when you're golfing, or or where you end when you're on the bike trail, kind of coming down to uh, have a burger or at least a drink of water. So this survives in what certainly was one of Milwaukee's largest and finest parks. And you have other attractions that are long gone, uh, but were sort of metropolitan scale. In 1928, South Milwaukee developed what they call the Auto Speedway, just south, uh, what is now the heart of downtown. You can see the dirt track here. And for years, they were the home of the spectacle of music. How many of you recall the Drum and Bugle Corps? And though they had parades down there that lasted probably till the 19, 1960s. My dad loved free stuff, so we were there every year. <laughs> and we kids described it as a candy parade, which meant they, th they threw things. <laughs> so this was uh, kind of the joyful noise of drum and drums and bugles that uh, filled the streets of South Milwaukee for at least a generation. So you have other uh, employers developing in South Milwaukee, but South Bucyrus, especially after merger with the Erie Company, Bucyrus Erie, <coughs> was still by far the largest. And you have, in 1969, they kind of hit a new bar when they built something called Big Muskie, named after the mine that it was destined for. And that was an Ohio coal strip mine. It was big enough to hold an entire high school marching band, <laughs> as they demonstrated. But that's getting just a little bit ahead of our story. Uh, south Milwaukee was bordered on the south by the town of Oak Creek. And early on, that was nothing but agriculture. So you, here you see a threshing crew at work. And there are still farms down there. But in those early years, it was absolutely farmland. 
and the march of industry kept on going down the South Shore, and there was a little settlement, uh, somewhat obscure, called Carrollville, which was just on the southern border of South Milwaukee and just in the town of Oak Creek. And it began back in 1899 as kind of a side product of Milwaukee's tanners who were taking their scraps and processing them to become glue. So it was the proverbial glue factory. It wasn't just old Dobbin. No, this was scraps from the, the tanneries in Milwaukee. And this also was a very uh, odoriferous uh, pursuit. So that's one reason they were so way out there on the south, near the south county line, because you had some rather strong smells. And like, like Cudahy, like South Milwaukee, like Bayview, developed a multi-ethnic work, workforce. Uh, early on, it was a lot of Eastern Europeans and then a lot of Latinos. And they were there when kind of the, the end came in the last 20 or 30 years. So we've gone about as far as you can in Milwaukee before you hit Racine County. But there was another South Shore suburb we haven't talked about because it did not exist until 1951. So now we go back to the older section of the South Shore. Years before Bayview and Cudahy became smokestack suburbs, Milwaukee's Catholic Archbishop bought 53 acres of tranquility on the South Shore, you know, just south of Oklahoma Avenue. And it opened, the seminary opened back in 1856. So this really is a pre-Civil War landmark. And St. Francis Seminary was soon turning out German-speaking priests. That was their mission back in the early years and very typical of Milwaukee. This was the heart of German Catholicism. In time, their mission broadened to include all ethnic groups, uh, but the seminary remained a real anomaly. The surrounding woods, which is one of my favorite things about living in Bayview, and the seminary woods are wonderful. No, this, this green remnant of what Milwaukee looked like before there was anybody here who had any dream of any, anything but uh, beyond European roots. So it's certainly what the natives knew back in the years before uh, the, the 1830s. But you have this anomalous uh, green space, the woods themselves and the seminary, surrounded by industry. You know, Bayview to the north and Cudahy to the south. And things got really close. You know, the smokestacks got really close. Back in the 1920s, uh, Milwaukee was growing so fast and there were so many industries growing that we almost ran out of power. The foundries actually had to rotate shutdowns because there was not enough electricity to keep them going. So the answer was a new power plant, and in 1921, the electric utility dedicated the lakeside power plant just across the street from the seminary grounds, where all the condos are. Not my favorite land use decision. Uh, it should have been parkland and might have been, but they built this back in 1929, or 21 rather, and it virtually defines superpower. I'd be willing to bet these are Alice Chalmers turbines and kind of this sort of modern uh, design sensibility. And you have these smokestacks puffing away where there are condos. And you have the seminary is just up there in the upper left-hand corner of, of the photograph. So you have the laws back in those years. If you had a plant as big as Lakeside, that property tax money stayed home. It stayed inside its uh, home municipality. So that was an incentive for people who lived in the area to develop a suburb, to incorporate a suburb, uh, carved out of the old town of Lake, which was the area south of Greenfield and east of 27th Street going all the way to the lake. It took them four tries 
But they finally succeeded in 1951, and that became the suburb of St. Francis, naturally built around the seminary. So that St. Francis kind of wedged in to uh, the area between Bayview and Cudahy. One larger and more recent power plant uh, was part of the development of the farthest suburb south in Milwaukee County. That, of course, was Oak Creek. And that demand for power kept on growing. So in 1951, what's now We Energies broke ground for an enormous powerhouse in the town of Oak Creek on Lake Michigan, south of Carrollville. It opened back in 1953, and they began to work for incorporation, again, for the tax benefits. They changed that in the 1970s, but again, for the tax breaks or tax revenue. So they tried hard to incorporate and finally succeeded in 1955. Up until then, if you wanted to incorporate as a village, you had to meet a common sense definition of, of urban, or at least uh, somewhat rural or semi-rural. And certainly the Oak Creek was anything but. This was farmland with a power plant. That's about all. Uh, but they had a friendly legislature that was dominated by rural uh, reps back in those years. So after a lot of lobbying, they became a fourth-class city back in 1955. And now any town with that law change that had 5,000 people and taxable property worth 20 million could incorporate. It was written for Oak Creek. It was called the, was called the Oak Creek Law. So even though it was rural in everything but name, this became the city of Oak Creek. So think for a moment, again, about the shores. You know, the north shore of the Milwaukee Harbor, Milwaukee Bay on the south shore. Can you imagine smokestacks at places like Oak Creek Power Plant and Lakeside Power Plant up in Whitefish Bay or Bayside or Shorewood? Not going to happen. No, that was not their destiny, but smokestacks were the destiny on Milwaukee's south shore. So going all the way back to the 1860s. So again, the past has a formative influence on the present. So been talking largely about beginnings tonight, about how things got started, and how a distinctive row of suburbs emerged on the South Lakeshore, going from Bayview all the way down to the county line. And bringing all those communities up to the present is beyond the scope of my talk tonight. Uh, but there are some patterns that are really very much in common, all those suburbs and the city neighborhoods as well, all experience much the same thing. One of those patterns is deindustrialization in the years since the 1980s. The Bayview Mill is long gone, Federal Rubber's gone, George Meyer's gone, dozens of others have kind of gone off to the, the happy hunting ground for industries back in the sky. But also you have uh, some impressive uh, survivors among them, Bucyrus itself, which was doing so well that it was purchased by Caterpillar a few years ago for $7.6 billion. And they made it the home of their construction equipment division. They moved very quickly to make it cat yellow. And they've kind of moved away from the Bucyrus identity, but certainly still a major presence on Milwaukee's South Lakefront. And you might mourn the loss of local control. They even closed the museum. I think perhaps a short-sighted decision, uh, but still a major player both globally and locally. And you have a lot of new investment in the South Shore as well. And that's one of the common themes in this section from Bayview on South is revitalization. And that all followed the building of a bridge. This was the Dan Hone Bridge built back in 1974. Loomed over the harbor for three years as the, the so-called bridge to nowhere. 
there was opposition on the south from residents, opposition on the north from people who liked Juneau Park, <laughs> as, as we all do and should. So there was no one in the middle, so they built the bridge first without any plans to connect it on both sides. So finally, in 1977, they finished the on and off ramps and going downtown, and all of a sudden, instantly, Bayview is 10 minutes from downtown. Before that had been this bumpy, narrow, congested stretch of First Street and KK. So the impact, obviously, was huge in terms of its popularity and certainly in real estate values, which continues. And that got more of an impetus when the Lake Parkway, Parkway was built down to Layton Avenue back in 1999. And now a widened Pennsylvania goes all the way down into College Avenue and beyond. So yeah, there are certainly challenges along the South Shore, but improved connections have created a new demand for both housing and business all up and down the line. So I'll close with a view from space. I've been telling this story of uh, Milwaukee South Shore from Walker's Point to Bayview to St. Francis, Cudahy, South Milwaukee, Carrollville, Oak, Oak Creek. It's a story that covers about a dozen miles of shoreline and nearly a century of development. And it's a story that still has tremendous relevance in 2017. Whatever the future holds, the South Shore's communities will always reflect the influence of their collective past. Again, it's part of the DNA. Each is a different expression, uh, the same industrial, working class theme. And that theme drove community formation for more than a century from Bayview in 1868 down to Oak Creek back in 1955 and gave the South Shore a tradition of making things that continues to the present that helped them do their work. So that proud tradition produced on the South Shore a collection of communities like no others in the state. And that heritage can be a, certainly a solid foundation for a sound future as we look into the years ahead. The end.